Thank you, Toria, for leading us into the presence of God. It is so good to worship together, even virtually. It restores our souls and it recalibrates our thoughts and our feelings in this challenging time. We're going to finish today our series on Matthew chapter 6, which is the second half of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be looking at verses 19 to 24. So if you want to look at in your Bibles now and have them open, that would be helpful. We've been going through this passage for the last three weeks and it is in so many ways the core of how to live the Christian life well and fruitfully. We've learnt that what matters is not so much what we do externally but what our Heavenly Father sees us do in secret and that is what he rewards. We've learnt that it's true of prayer, it's true of fasting, it's true of giving. We've also learnt how to pray in the way that Jesus prayed in the Lord's Prayer and a prayer that changes people and situations. We heard through Craig really helpfully uh, about anxiety and how God wants us to help us with that and this week we're going to be talking about money and treasure and it's really interesting that later on in Matthew uh, in, in chapter 13 Jesus picks these two up again when he talks about the parable of the sower and he talks about the seed that fell in good ground and started well but was then choked by thorns he says the thorns are the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. So it appears that these two things that we're looking at in these two weeks are really at the core of how it is to be fruitful as Christians in our lives. So let's turn now to Matthew chapter 6 verse 19. I'm going to be reading from the J.B. Phillips version in just slightly fresher for a familiar passage. Don't pile up treasures on earth where moth and rust can spoil them and thieves break in and steal. But keep your treasure in heaven, where there is neither moth nor rust to spoil and no one can break in and steal. For wherever your treasure is, you can be certain your heart will be there too. The lamp of the body is the eye. If your eye is sound, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if all the light you have is darkness, it is dark indeed. No one can be loyal to two masters. He's bound to hate one and love the other, or support one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and the power of money at the same time. First sight, this is a little confusing. We can understand how treasure and money go together, but what's this piece about eyes and what's that got to do with it? It's actually a common style of teaching and Jesus also used it to talk in groups of three. And often the middle piece of the three was the most important. And this is no exception. This middle piece about eyes in many ways explains the, and undergirds the other two. We need to understand that people in the ancient world saw things differently, understood things differently. And part of the so-called clash between science and Christianity is often because people try and interpret what they read in the Bible through 20th century eyes when it comes to do with scientific understanding. And of course, it's different. So in this case, particularly, the Jewish people and everybody in the world at those days understood light not as something coming from the sun and reflecting off everything so we see it. They thought light came from their own eyes. It was as though each of our eyes is a torch 
and it shines light out into the world. And so we see things, but also equally, of course, it shines inside, which gives us understanding of ourselves, our hearts, our motivations, and what is really going on in our lives. And so they would understand their light as being coming completely from your eyes. So if your eyes were good, you would see the world clearly and you'd understand yourself well and be able to live an undivided life. But if your eye was bad or, or evil, then you wouldn't see things clearly at all. And in fact, inside, it would be dark and that darkness would be dark indeed. And also every Jewish child would have been taught growing up what a good and a bad eye meant in Jewish law. A bad eye was always associated with being greedy, selfish, not caring for other people. Whereas a good eye is associated with grace and generosity. And therefore what Jesus is teaching here and would have been totally understood by his hearers is that the heart of both of these things that he's talking about is a spirit of generosity, is a good eye. That is the key to understanding either of these two passages. Doug Allison, a commentator on this, says, a person with a good or healthy eye is one who, through generosity to others, serves God instead of money and stores up treasure in heaven. I think that sums it up, so I'll read it again. A person with a good or healthy eye is one who, through generosity to others, serves God instead of money and stores up treasure in heaven. Generosity is a powerful spiritual weapon. It's a powerful weapon in combating the spirit around us of materialism, of, of possessions, of advertising, fashion, uh, uh, which is so rampant in our society. And, and if we're honest, we're often touched as well. We'll come back to this in a few minutes at the end. So going back to the beginning of the passage, firstly, Jesus talks about treasure. And he says two simple but profound truths. First of all, he says, we all have treasure. Treasure matters to all of us. As human beings, we're all collecting something. We all value something as most important. But the contrast is between earthly and heavenly treasure. Earthly treasure doesn't last. And not only doesn't last forever, it, it fades. It, it can rust. It can lose its shine. Whereas heavenly treasure lasts an awful long time. Eternal. And it never fades. When you buy something new and shiny, it's always so exciting to begin with. But within a few weeks, we get used to it and it fades. Heavenly treasure never fades. It's interesting, this passage, this whole chapter, is shot through with references to treasure in heaven, rewards in heaven. Jesus seemed to feel this was very important. I'm not sure that we necessarily remember that very often. But he said, what we do on earth has eternal significance for our life in heaven. I don't know how that works out, but it's very clear that it's true. We know when we last made a contribution to our earthly treasure. The question is, when did you last make a contribution to your heavenly treasure? Or when did I? When was the last time we gave, shared, did something that stored up heavenly treasure. Paul picks this up in 1 Timothy 5 and 6. And 1 Timothy 6 is a hugely helpful chapter if you want to follow up what we're looking at today where there's some more practical outworking. And he talks about um, the rich and 
we need to understand that in biblical terms and in world terms, nearly all of us are rich. If we have more than two rooms in somewhere to live, we're rich. If we have the use of a car or are able to go on public transport, we're rich. If we have more than two sets of clothing to wear, we're rich. So this is what he says in verses 18 and 19. Command the rich to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, treasure in heaven, so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. Do you want to take hold of life that is truly life? Here in this life, do you want to store up treasure for eternal value? Well, it's very simple. Be rich in good deeds, be generous and share. Secondly, he gives us a very simple and infallible test to find out what our true treasure is. It's where our heart is. What does that mean? Well, I suppose it means what is our primary treasure, the thing we would most want in our life, the relationship, the lifestyle, the experiences, the status, maybe the money or possessions that we most want, that most engages our emotions, that we would think about when we think about nothing else, that we would daydream about. That's the way to tell where your heart is. Now, of course, these are not bad things, most of them anyway. It's right to desire them. The question, though, is have they become our treasure and do they therefore end up owning us? Jesus tells the, the encounter he has with a rich young ruler who obviously genuinely wants to follow him and says, what must I do? to follow you and Jesus says well all you have left to do now is give away all your possessions to the poor and he says he went away sad I think genuinely very sad because as an early commentator said the problem was he did not possess his riches his riches owned him and that is the danger of money it can possess us and the danger of our treasure but the answer is not necessarily to value these things less. It is simply to value the greatest treasure more. Jesus told two simple parables illustrating this of the man who found buried treasure in a field, sold everything he had to get it. The man who found the pearl beyond great price sold everything he had to get it. Jesus is our pearl beyond great price. He is worth everything. He is the ultimate and greatest treasure. As it says in Corinthians, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and, and so much everything else are ours in Jesus. He is our treasure. We're in the season of renewal. It is a time that God wants to dig deeper into our lives, to purify us, to help us love him more uh, and worship him more. And this is one of the calls to it, I think, is to, is to appreciate more. What a wonderful treasure Jesus is. And I do feel as I was preparing this, there are some of us whom something that we're holding on to, some of our own treasure, is actually blocking us and hindering us from seeing how great a treasure Jesus is. Just pause for a moment. Just ask the Holy Spirit, is there something that is actually getting in the way of you seeing Jesus clearly and him becoming your greatest treasure and therefore freeing you to desire anything else because he is our greatest treasure. Let's pray into that in these days. 
So what about money, which Jesus comes on to next? Well, this bit probably needs a sort of health warning, because it's likely that all of us, including me, will be upset about something that comes out of this passage. So to make this as real as possible, I'm going to talk about the biblical truths, but I'm also going to give examples of how Nikki and I and our family have worked this out in our lives over the years. The first is biblical truth, and, and I would always encourage you to check it yourselves. Read these other chapters like 1 Timothy 6. Um, but it stands as eternal truth. The second is simply our example and our testimony. Uh, I'm not saying you need to follow it. Uh, I'm just saying it might help, it might provoke, it, it might equip you to think differently about how you can live your life in this area and live a life free from money. I appreciate we are in many different situations here in regard to money. We may be single professional people with money to spare, really. Or we may be young families with hardly enough to make ends meet at the end of the month. We may be living just on minimal benefits, or we may have significant savings and good pension provision to look forward to. But we live in a society where becoming more prosperous is seen as the number one goal. And the danger of that in our lives is real. And that's why this, pallet, this passage challenges that heads on. Because Jesus doesn't say it's not good to serve both God and the love of money. He doesn't even say you should make sure you serve God more than you love money. He starkly says you cannot serve God and money or the love of money. And that is a real challenge. It is not a little bit of one and a bit of the other. We either serve one or we serve the other. We're either slaves to God or slaves to money. 1 Timothy 6 again, this time verse 10, says some people eager for money have wandered from the face, faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So let's be practical. How do we handle money? Well, two principles. First of all, we need to be neither obsessed by it or casual with it. It is possible for managing our money and looking after our money to itself become an obsession. This is my challenge. I, I, I like maths, I like figures, I've got a competitive streak. I, I like to see that if I've got a pension scheme that I can manage it and invest it well and, and make more money. So years ago I realised the danger and I stopped. So I now uh, do not get involved in where I save or invest. I do it, I make it wisely and I leave it because I know otherwise I could get drawn into it. There may others of you that's not a problem for. This is just knowing myself and my problem. For some of the rest of us, the problem may be being casual. We don't really account for money. We don't have budgets. We just spend it till we have nothing left and therefore any giving or saving is from whatever is left. I believe it's biblical to budget. I believe we are stewards of what God has given us. Um, and Matthew 25, the parable of the talents is very interesting in this regard because Jesus ends up by saying to one of the servants, because you've been faithful in small things, I will put you in charge of many things. And I believe there's a principle that if we look after our money well, God sees that faithfulness and that good stewardship and entrusts us with more. So if you want to have ministry in the church, if you want to have a position of leadership and helping others, manage your money well, because God sees that and he will reward it. The second principle is all about the order in which we use our money, because there's only three things we can do. We can either give, or we can spend, or we can save. 
I can't think of anything else. And uh, the order we put those in our lives is absolutely critical. The temptation is to spend first, as I said, and then give or save out of the others. The biblical order is very clear. It is give first and then save or spend. I suspect save might even come before spend. And the Old Testament principle that helps us here is the principle of tithing. I'm not going to go into it in great detail. Simply, it's about giving the first part of whatever God gives to us, whether it's through salary, whether it's through benefits, whether it's through gifts or anything, giving the first part, that 10%, directly back to him. And that is a good starting point. Um, it's, we've always seen it as 10% that you give to your local church, the place that we're committed to, the body that we belong to um, for its ministry. And then on top of that is what we do by way of our giving. I think though there's two dangers in this that are worth highlighting. The first danger is to think that, okay, well, we've given our 10% to God and therefore we can do whatever we want with the rest without any regard to how we spend it. I don't think that's true. I think, as we said, we are stewards and it's all God's gift to us in the first place. Just like salvation is a gift, his provision is a gift. So how we use that other 90 percent is actually quite important. And he's interested, very interested. In fact, when he watched that widow put those three coins in at the temple collecting box, he commented that although that was very little, she put in everything she had. And that's what made all the difference. So he's as interested in what we do with what's left, as in what we do with that 10%. And of course, the second one is, as we earn more, our needs do not go up as much. And if we're not careful, our lifestyle goes up much more quickly than our giving goes up. If you can earn more, you can give more than 10%, quite easily. We've always had a goal, or I've had a goal, to try and get above 20%. And there are a few years where we've managed that in terms of our total giving. And that's been great to be honest it's been a great joy because there is enormous joy in giving so I would encourage us to be always thinking there's a baseline but what can we do beyond that as God prospers us we've always tithed even when we were in very difficult situations uh, we had a period when we were living on benefits for a bit where I didn't have a job having been made redundant for quite some time there was one Christmas where we barely had enough even just to buy the basics of food. And I'll always remember the time I opened the front door to find a box of Christmas goodies um, outside. And it's a wonderful reminder of God's faithfulness always. So we've always tithed. He's always provided for us. And I think, I don't think it'd be wrong to say that it is on that principle of faithfulness and obedience and it, obedience he's enabled us to do that he has now in this season blessed us and prospered us so that we can give more and can give that 20%. I think as we're faithful in tithing, what he says is he will prosper us and then as he sees us being responsible, he'll be able to use us for his kingdom. So I would encourage you that, that yes, God does bless back in tithing as we often say, not as the televangelists necessarily say, it gives you much more every time you give. But over time, over life, we have no doubt in our testimony, he always provides. And if we give well, he will enable us to give even more. Randy Alcorn in this book, Money, Possessions and Eternity, which is a great book, says, one of the few experiences comparable to the joy of leading someone to Christ, which is an incredible joy, is the joy of making wise and generous choices with our money. Both are supreme acts of worship. 
Both are what we're made for. We have an opportunity to give coming up. It's exciting. It's the Trinity offering for the mission of, of, of the church that we are committed to and involved in. Can I encourage you, ask God. It's what we always do, how much to give. Don't work out what I've got, work out what God wants us to give. Give generously, take a risk, step out in a generous spirit. And I promise you, you there'll be a real joy in it. But this isn't just a talk before a giving Sunday. This is an encouragement to live life as a life of generosity, free from the love of money, treasuring Jesus first. So briefly, just talk about the other two areas for a couple of minutes. Saving. I believe we're encouraged to do so. 1 Timothy 5 verse 8 talks about caring for relatives being our duty. You can't do that unless you've saved. But I would be careful that we can overdo this. There's something concerning about the goal of financial advice to make us financially independent of God. I don't ever want to get to the point where I never need God to provide for my needs. But I do want to be responsible in what I do. Secondly, spending. The principle here is simplicity. Hebrews 13 verses 5 and 6. To keep your lives free from the love of money is to be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Different families and people focus on different things. You may have a genuine interest, a creative outlet, something that matters to you that you would pay more for and do more than other people would. And that's fine because that's how God's made us. But it's this overall sense of knowing the difference between necessities and luxuries, the difference between creative hobbies and empty activities, the difference between appropriate joyful celebrations and extravagant lifestyles of eating out. One of the things we've done at a particular season that helped us when we were able to buy a few more things, uh, start buying for the house, was we tried whenever we bought something significant to give a significant amount of money away at the same time. It somehow felt good to us. It may not be appropriate for you, but we found it helpful. So to summarise, the key to all of this, as we saw at the beginning, is the spirit of generosity. Simply our heartfelt response to God's overwhelming, amazing, costly generosity in giving us his son Jesus. We, we simply can't afford to be enslaved by money, either by loving it or by fearing the lack of it. There is far too much at stake, both in this life and eternally, for us to fall into that. The answer is a spirit of generosity. This is spiritual warfare at its most real and most basic. The devil will always attack us in this thing of generosity and money. But as I close, can I ask you to think about and go away and pray in this season of renewal again about how you can be released into a spirit of generosity. It may be, um, and this was my situation in our upbringing, we had very little money and therefore I struggle with generosity from an upbringing. You may need to actually ask someone just to pray for you and release you from things from your upbringing. It may be a spirit of poverty. Some people have taken that on board. It may be fear of not being able to afford what we want. It may be simple greed or materialism. These are strongholds of the enemy to stop us being generous as people and generous as a church. So I'm just going to pray for us as we finish. Father, we thank you for your word that is so full of truth and life and promise, but is also so practical. I just pray that you would release to each of us and through us as a church, a spirit of great generosity that will amaze the world. And I just pray in these 
few days or weeks ahead of us, you will continue to speak to us about how amazing our treasure is in Jesus. Thank you, Father. Amen. Thank you. Have a great day.